Well, good morning and uh, praise the Lord. That was just sometimes in worship. It's just man, I was I was done after that. I was ready to go home to heaven. Um, but this morning we're picking it back up in Genesis chapter twenty six. Uh, we're not going to cover the whole thing. I originally thought we would, but it's going to be split into uh, two parts, I believe. And this first part, we're going to cover the first seventeen verses of Genesis twenty six. And uh, the title of the message is Dwell in This Land. Uh, Previously, we saw that Abraham took a new wife. Remember, Sarah had died, and this new wife's name is Incense. And I just like that because the correlation between prayer and incense uh, as a a visual symbol in Scripture. And we know Abraham was a man of meeting with God and praying by the trees of memory. But Abraham's other sons, he sent them far away before he died. That that way they wouldn't uh, interfere with the inheritance of the promised son, Isaac. And then we saw that Abraham died and Isaac and Ishmael came back together to bury him. And then Isaac went and dwelled in Beher Lahoi Roy, where uh, uh, Hagar actually called out to God. But remember that Isaac prayed for Rebekah to give birth, that she had been barren for 20 long years. Um, Esau and Jacob were born. They were twins, but they were, I don't think you could have two kids who are any more different, even though they shared a womb. Um, and we saw that as they grew at some point, uh, Esau came home and he was hungry and he sold his birthright. He counted it worthless. The Bible says that he despised it. This is how he despised it for a little bowl of vegan stew. Uh, and we saw how it just didn't even matter to him. We're not going to hear more about the birthright in this chapter. We'll see that in the next chapter. Uh, but today we're going to see that famine returns. And what does Isaac do? When that famine comes, there's a few questions here for this drawn out intro, but have you ever tried to make something work in your own strength to get a job? You know, I remember being out of a job or getting my first job and you just apply and apply and apply. And with the recession, you know, it's a, it's a buyer's market, so to speak, to where there's more people than there are jobs. So you hear back or you don't, uh, you do everything you can to try and get a job, hopefully, or to start a business, you do everything you can, try and get everything together, maybe trying to get loans or try and get equipment or a place. How about on the relationship side? Have you ever tried to no end, to no avail to, to get a relationship or to get one that lasts or find someone who will stay with you for more than a date? Or I was seeing this joke online about someone who was on a date and they spilled a taco on themselves and they tried to play it off and then it happened again, and the date said, I'll go get you a napkin. And they walked right past the napkins and got in the car and left. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that's you. You just can't seem to get the mess off your shirt, and no one wants to stay with you. Or maybe try and save your pennies. I can relate to this. Trying to save money, trying to put money away, and every time I do, something happens. And on one hand, I'm frustrated because I'm like, oh, I'm trying to save up for this thing in life. On the other hand, I'm like, oh, well, I'm glad I had something saved away to be able to cover this. But still, it's It's frustrating. Or that, you know, taxes come. Or maybe you're just trying to get your boss to like you. You work real hard. They don't see how good of an employee you are. And it just doesn't work in your own strength. Maybe these things work out or maybe they don't. Maybe you don't get hired. Maybe your business falls apart. Or, you know, how many small businesses don't make it? Especially restaurants. Maybe your dates end up being nightmares or people keep dumping you. Like I said, every time you save money, maybe it finds wings. But Proverbs says, and I love this verse. I used to 
play some board games with friends and I always bring up this verse where Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And maybe we don't play, cast lots like they used to, you know, draw straws. I like how the New Living Translation says the first part. It says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. You know, we can gamble and we can roll the dice and we can do as much as we can. But at the end of the day, we don't control which way those dice end up. As much as uh, the lottery makes you think you can win, it's throwing your money away. As much as those casinos make you think you're going to win, it's obvious by the amount of gold and shiny things that are there and how much free stuff they give you that you don't win when you go there. They go, they win when you go there. But sometimes getting ahead in life, getting the right job, the right companion, the right amount of favor, the right perspective is truly about simply going and doing what the Lord has said. And sometimes what the Lord says to us is very simple. And we either obey it or we don't. Because in life, it's truly not about getting ahead. If you get ahead, you get, you're just going to end up falling behind. It's tortoise in the hair. If you get ahead, you know, you're, you usually have to sacrifice something in life. But with the Lord, it's truly about getting to know him and being where he wants you to be in life. John 21, 1-7 says, And after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We're going with you too. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night, they caught nothing. But when the morning has now come, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered from the boat, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the sea. You know, they're fishing all night. One, their nets and their lines are on one side of the boat. It's not that big of a boat. They catch nothing. Jesus says to throw it on the other side, four feet away, and they catch fish. I think it was more than just being on the other side of the boat. I think it was listening to what the Lord had to say, no matter how simple or how right in front of you it seemed to be. And I was reading devotional this morning, uh, my utmost for his highest, and I thought this parts of it, the whole thing, but I'm only going to read part of it really meshed with what we're going through today. And it says, Once the love of God has been poured out in, the hearts by the, in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we deliberately begin to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ's interests and purpose is in others' lives. And Jesus has an interest in every individual person. We have no right in Christian service to be guided by our own interests and desires. In fact, this is one of the greatest tests of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The delight of sacrifice is that I lay down my life for my friend, Jesus. I don't throw my life away, but I willingly and deliberately lay it down for him and his interests and other people. And I do this for no cause or purpose of my own. And it goes on to say, many of us are interested only in our own goals, and Jesus cannot help himself to our lives. But if we are totally surrendered to him, we have no goals of our own to serve. Paul said that we knew how to be a doormat, that he knew how to be a doormat, without resenting it, because the motivation of his life was devotion to Jesus. We tend to be devoted not to Jesus Christ, but to the things which allow us more spiritual freedom 
than total surrender to him would allow. Freedom was not Paul's motive at all. And one more quote, I believe this was Chuck Smith, the late Pastor Chuck Smith, who says, Stay under the spout where his grace comes out. And Lord, truly this morning, we want to be where you are. We want to be, you want us to be obedient. And because of that, we truly need to be obedient to you and to the things you say to us, God, that we might be where your grace is, but we might be where you are, that we might know you and trust you and be a witness and a light. And God, that truly we might have a blessed and as we'll see a prosperous life. God, not that we will be rich necessarily, but that we would be rich uh, in the spiritual realm. And we love you, God. God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. So we're going to try and take even these 17 verses in some bite-sized chunks this morning. So we're going to start out with the first six verses together in Genesis 26. And the word says, There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law, my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. We see that this is another famine. Bob was clear this isn't the same famine that was before, but it's showing that famines are coming again in this land. And this is the promised land, and yet there's a famine there. That these were seriously hard times, and famines were common occurrence in the Bible. You know, we still have famines today, uh, but I think because of our prosperity in America, uh, we don't tend to notice them. We have food stores. When crops go bad, well, we have plenty of grain left to do it. We have grain enough uh, for a while. And in fact, uh, in, my, in work, we do a lot with uh, some companies that produce poultry. And this past year was kind of a rough poultry year. And so the price, you know, there's a whole problems with supply and everything with that. And yet you and I go to the store and, oh, the chicken's 10 cents more a pound. You know, it's a little more expensive, but we're able to handle it. It's not that there's no chicken there. I mean, sometimes we go to Walmart lately and because of all the weather, the supply trucks haven't come and some things are out of stock. But I know that in a couple of days it'll be there. Um, it's kind of scary to think what would happen if things really ran out. And that's what's happening here. There's a famine. There's, the store shelves are going empty. And we've had in America that abundance for over a century. I remember coming back from my first missions trip and going to the store and looking in the aisle and just being in shock of a thousand salad dressings and just how much blessing there was. You know, we look back to about 100 years ago, it was the Great Depression. There was the Dust Bowl when the, all the farmlands turned to dust. Uh, if you saw that movie Interstellar, they try and replicate that in the future. They, they show these clips of these people talking, and, and that's from a documentary about the Dust Bowl. Um, you know, when they couldn't grow. It's not that there's no food in the store, you have to go to the next town, it's that you can't plant. The ground won't support it, and that's where they're here. They have nothing to eat or their food is dwindling. And so Isaac says, no food here. I need to go to a place and find food. And Egypt tended to be the place to go, it seemed. You know, either they weren't being affected by the famine at this time, I'm not sure, um, or perhaps they were prosperous and had an overflow. We look uh, to the future when Joseph is in Egypt. Um, 
Pharaoh has a dream about the seven uh, seven cows and the heads of grain, and Joseph is the one to interpret it for him uh, by the Lord. And it says that there's seven good years followed by seven bad years, that this famine that's coming in Joseph's day is worse than these famines that they're experiencing. So perhaps Egypt is able to deal with a small famine, but in that future, God warns them that this famine's coming and you really need to save up for it because a year's supply is not going to last. But he goes there and he stops uh, in uh, Philistia on the way. And this is a place that his family was obviously familiar with. But I wonder, are we ready for famine, even a practical famine? You know, go to the ant, Proverbs 6 says, you, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. You know, we used to be better about it, but we're, you know, trying to stock up extra food. You know, we can never stock up enough food for 10 years, 20 years. You know, you really need to learn how to grow your own food and have animals and livestock for that. But even the government says for natural disasters and things, you need to have some food saved up, about three weeks worth. And I don't think we, we do because you go to the store right before a big blizzard and what runs out? All the milk and all the, all the bread and all the other things are because we weren't prepared for it. So if we can't handle a snowstorm, I don't know how we can handle um, a famine. So it's important to have savings in life, preparation, you know, to have skills and to think ahead. But even worse than that, even though we don't have a physical famine, I believe that there's a famine of God's word in our land. That even though people have the Bible, and you know, I go to the hotel, they, they don't put Bibles in the hotel rooms anymore where I've been staying. I kind of want to leave mine behind <laughs> and put it in there. You know, sometimes I see a uh, uh, Book of Mormon and I throw it out. So I'd rather have them eat nothing than to eat garbage. Uh, but do people know that they can come to us? during a, a famine of God's word, that they can come to us for godly biblical answers, for prayer, for advice. You know, I was at work recently and a couple people asked to speak to me after a meeting and I'm like, I, had, I thought it was about something totally different and they ended up sharing something with me that they wanted me to pray for. And I was like, wow, you know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and we had a little conversation and it was good. Uh, but sincerely, do they know that? Do people know that you're a believer? People know that you know what the Bible says. When, uh, and as a Christian, whether you've been a Christian a day or a hundred years, you should be able to have answers for them. And if not, you know exactly where to get them, the Word of God and prayer. Because you're capable. You know, God has given you His Word in the Scripture. You don't need to rely on anyone else. Yeah, other people can teach you and you can learn a lot from others. But at the end of the day, God's given you His Word as well. And it's our responsibility to be prepared for this famine of God's word ourselves. We need to know the scripture for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves grazing in the wrong pastures. But as Isaac was in the promised land, and again, when famine came, it caused him to naturally want to go somewhere else. You go somewhere, you want to go out to eat. There's, I think it's a Mexican restaurant on the street. It looks open, but it's closed. They had a fire on the inside. So you go there for dinner. Nope, you're going to want to go somewhere else. That's naturally what you want to do. You're hungry, you're going to go until you find food. And in life, troubles tend to drive us from where we're supposed to be. This was the land that God had promised him, and yet he begins to go somewhere else. And perhaps even thinking rationally, there's no food here, i got to go somewhere else. But trouble isn't always a sign that we're doing the wrong thing. Trouble isn't always a sign that we're in the wrong place. You know, I remember when uh, a place I was at started to go under years ago where we thought it was, so people started quitting and leaving, and it didn't go under. And I'm glad I listened to the Lord and stayed there. 
because we need to consider the trouble that comes our way and take it to the Lord and not be obstinate in our own thinking and think that trouble is just people or the world out to get us or that it's a sign to move on. We really need to take it to the Lord and see what he says is for. Because trouble can be, yeah, we're doing the wrong thing. Or it can be just opposition. And we're not the ones to figure that out rationally. We need the, the Holy Spirit to show us. Because the key is seeking the Lord for the reason of the trouble and what to do in it. He'll tell us why and he'll tell us how and what to do. So at this time, Isaac goes to Abimelech. You know, we see this name in scripture. It's not a guy's name. It's not his mom had him and said, oh, baby Abimelech. No, Abimelech is a title of a king. Um, it's not the same Abimelech that was around in Abraham's day. I don't know their culture. Maybe it was the son of Abimelech and he passed on or maybe it's just another king. Uh, but in any event, he's a king of the Philistines. And just like Abraham did, Isaac does. Abraham went to Abimelech. Abraham tried to go to Egypt or went to Egypt at several times. And uh, now Isaac does as well. And the fig doesn't fall far from the tree. I don't know if they have apples over there, but I know they have figs and dates, right? So the fig doesn't fall far from the tree here. Isaac saw how his dad lived. Isaac knows my dad was successful and right. So I guess this is just what to do. I, my dad taught me how to go to the store. So now I'm going to the store like he did. And it's at this time that the Lord appears to Isaac, like the Lord had appeared to Abraham. And it, Isaac wasn't necessarily seeking the Lord here. Maybe he was. We know that he prayed for Rebekah previously. Uh, but it shows here that the Lord appeared to him, that this answer to his prayer, or even just the answer to the situation in his life, God revealed himself to him. You know, was this a vision? Was it more subtle? Was it just a message Isaac heard on TV? I don't know, but I'm apt to take it at face value. It says that God appeared to him. I'm going to take it that God appeared to him, that he saw, you know, if not in the spiritual, in the physical, just like his father Abraham did when God promised Abraham things and God even showed up on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham saw him walking on the road and he invited him in. But the first thing the Lord says, he says, dwell in this land. He knows what Isaac's doing. He knows what his intent of his heart is. He says, no, 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 don't go to Egypt. Stay here. Don't just stay here. Dwell here. Live here. Make this your home. Because this was the promised land. And famine or not, this is where the Lord's blessing was for him. This is the land that God had planned for him the whole time. And we can be tempted to flee, especially in famine in life. And we tend to look for some earthly king, some Abimelech, to be our provision. Universal health care, free education, universal basic income. But I don't think we want the kings of this earth to be our provider. Because we're to expect the Lord to appear to us in every circumstance, especially the hard ones. And I think like we talked about last time about medical care and things, that we tend to miss God's provision, God's instruction, and God's word for us when we rush ahead when times are hard. When we look for a way out in times are hard. And it's fine. You have a hard time in your life, begin to look for answers. Begin to look for that job. Begin to look for ways to cut your bills. But in that process, expect the Lord to appear to you. And provide for you. Because we need to be wise, like an ant, sluggard, who doesn't just sit around but begins to prepare. But I think we're smarter than the ant. We're made in God's image. So as we prepare, we need to look to the Lord. And the Lord reminds Isaac of that promise. He makes it real to him. Not just through the words of his dad or his mom or, you know, on some birth certificate that he has. 
But God directly promises the same things. He repeats the promise that he gave to Abraham. He repeats it to Isaac. He brings up the stars again. I tell you, you really can see more stars in the country. When we grew up in Jersey, we saw a few stars. New York City, you don't see any stars. The sky is bright from the light in the city. We moved to upstate New York. We saw way more stars. I remember the first time I visited upstate New York, probably 2002 or some that, somewhere around there, and I remember going, whoa, all these stars. And it's nothing compared to what is out here. On a clear night, you can see so much. And God, and think about then, back then, there's no city lights. They have torches. They're in the middle of the desert. Every night, Isaac could look up and be reminded of God's promise. He could not forget it. Maybe in the day, he could forget God's promise, but not at night. And I think, you know, if you remember what his dad said about the promise to his dad about the sands of the seashore as they took this road near the ocean from uh, this area down to Egypt, that he would remember God's promise to him by day and by night, just like that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night for the Israelites fleeing the Egyptian army. And know that God will appear to you. I'm not saying he's going to show up in front of you. If he does, well... Check your medicine, but <laughs> sincerely, God will show up to you and he'll answer you and he'll provide for you. It may not be in the way we think or want even, but he will provide. But he says to him, because your father Abraham obeyed. I've got all these promises, but you know what? They're coming to you because your dad obeyed. And Abraham had a hand in his son's spiritual inheritance. It wasn't just his physical God promised these things, and God provided these things, but the conduit was Abraham's obedience. And we have a great duty to our children to obey God ourselves. Because the promises for them are great. And it's our duty that they would not be hindered, and our children would not be hurt, and that they would see God for who He is, and see God in His victories in our lives, and not see him for our failures in our lives. Not attribute our failures to God, but that they would see him winning in our life. You know, we can't just drop off our children at Sunday school. I understand that that's a good intent. You know the right thing to do, and you want your kids to go to church, and you think they'll be okay. You know, maybe it's not for you, but you know it's the right thing, so let them have a good start. But you know what? God will use that. But how much more will he use a parent who's devoted to God themselves? And how much more effective? And if you know it's the right thing for your kids, you know deep down that it's the right thing for you. So please go. But they go to Gerar, and we know that means lodging place. And again, as we saw earlier in uh, other chapters, uh, that is a Philistine town south of Gaza, a modern place called Um. <laughs> let's go on. Let's read verses 7 through 11. It says, The men of the place... Uh, Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife. Because he thought, Lest the men in this place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. 
And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. We'll stop there. It says, The men of the place asked about his wife. So Isaac goes down to Gerar and Philistia, and all the men of the place go, Who is this lady? Who is she? What's her name? Is she single? That's a typical old man, right? They see a pretty woman, and they start to talk amongst themselves, and they start to ask about her. Who is she? I remember when uh, Ashley first started coming to church, church, of course I do. She's beautiful to be all right. <laughs> but she was my wife. She'd become my wife. Um, but I remember we used to have these uh, college-age Bible studies and hangout nights, and all of a sudden, guys from other churches started coming regularly. They weren't coming before, but now that Ashley was there, she was coming regularly. I guarantee that the single guys were talking. Oh, boy. But when the, when the Philistines started talking about Rebekah, Isaac chickens out. And he says, she's my sister. When he's in the locker room, he doesn't go, that's my wife, shut your mouth. He says, she's my sister. And I'd never tell anyone that Ashley was my sister. I hope not. I say, she's my wife. Now get lost. <laughs> get your own. <laughs> Sincerely, I wonder where he learned that line from. Cough, cough, Abraham. She's my sister. Was she his sister? Was he telling a half-truth like his dad? Not really. She's a distant relative, a distant cousin perhaps, but not his half-sister. So he was literally taking his dad's playbook here. Tried to go down to Egypt. He went to Gerar. He got afraid, just like his pops. And he said, she's my sister. And he had the same fears as his dad did. And I see similar fears sometimes in my kids, things that I've had or had, being afraid of the dark, being afraid of trying something new, you know, not wanting to jump off a, a diving board as a kid. And I see, you know, some of my kids not wanting to go down the slide or do something, I have to encourage them. Uh, but it's part of my duty as a dad is to help them through those fears, just like God has helped me through them. You know, I'm maybe a little afraid of the dark, but I carry a flashlight now. And so I show them how to turn on the lights and carry a flashlight. But I let God help me through my fears in life continually. I tend to be a, an afraid person, but I turn to God for my strength. And I try and help them, that they would not be captive to them. I, don't, I try not to berate them for it. I try to help them through it. And to give them practical tools and skills in life, like that flashlight, to work through it. But obviously we see here that Isaac was a lot like his dad. And uh, he was afraid of these guys and decided to pass off his wife as his sister. Yet... Even though all these guys are talking, no one tries to take her. It's not like Sarah where she ended up in, in the king's house and the king's harem. No one takes her. And that's definitely the grace of God here. God, I'm not going to let this happen again. You know, there's this beautiful, young, single woman shows up in town, or single so they think, and no one asks her out. Give me a break. In the world, I remember being a guy, everyone would be like fighting, you know, over somebody. Her beauty must have been pretty intimidating. She was so pretty that no one was like, oh, I don't know, you ask her out. She's out of my league. But they didn't ask her. But Abimelech, he's just hanging out, walking through his house, or at his tent or whatever he's living in, and he looks out his window. You know, every time you're just kind of like walking, you just kind of gaze out the window as you're walking somewhere. Um, what does he see? He sees Isaac and Rebecca, and they're not acting like brother and sister, or not acting like a brother and sister should. 
I love uh, the King James Version calls it sporting, that he's sporting with Rebecca. So they're flirting, they're playing, they're having public displays of affection. You know, Isaac's near this king's house. He's obviously not afraid. He's obviously accepted in their community. You know, he's not fearing for his life at this point. But he's sneaking a little with his wife outside in the garden or wherever they are. And the king looks out and he goes, he's not grossed out. Immediately he realizes, that's not his sister. Give me a break. That is definitely not his sister. And he said, he calls for Isaac. So Isaac comes in. And I really love what Abimelech says because I can almost hear him say it. He goes, quite obviously, she's not your wife, Isaac. Like, give me a break. This is, this is I mean, quite obviously, she is your wife. She's not your sister. Give me a break. Look at her. And this Abimelech, like his predecessor, at this moment, is more righteous than this man of God, this promised son. He goes, what have you done? Do you realize what one of us could have done and what it would have brought upon us? What great sin we would have committed because we didn't know that she was actually your wife? Are you serious, Isaac? Why would you do this to us? Does this not sound familiar? Does this not sound like what happened previously with Abraham? You know, Isaac, you didn't just lie to save yourself here, buddy. You could have brought a great, grave sin on all of us. You know, the side note of sin versus transgression, where transgression is purposely doing something wrong. Sin is doing something wrong, even if you don't know. And that's what Ben was talking about. We wouldn't have known, but we still would have sinned. And he, just like his predecessor, knew that and was righteous about it. And lying always has deeper and wider consequences than just trying to protect ourselves. I mean, he put his wife at risk here. King says one of the people could have. The king didn't even want her. The king was looking out his window. He wasn't like David looking out and seeing Bathsheba. He just gazed out his window. And, oh, the king hadn't brought her into his house. Even though all the men are talking about her, the king wasn't trying to prove something and get her for himself. Maybe he learned that. Maybe he heard from the kings previous to him about what happened. You know, the king was concerned about his people too because he said one of the people could have. He's like, I didn't do it. But what if one of my people did it? They would have been guilty of this. Isaac? I believe this king knew that one person's sin could affect the entire nation. And they all would have been accountable for it. So no, I don't agree with your sinful lifestyle. I do not approve of your sinful lifestyle or the decisions you make apart from God. I extend God's grace to you. And I care about you and I love you. Truly. I do not hate you because of your sin at all. But I'm not going to legislate it. I'm not going to vote for it. I'm not going to allow it in my church that God has allowed me to pastor. I'm not going to allow it in my home. That's it. It's because I love you. Because I know that the effects of these things at the end is death. You know, sin is fun for a season, but the end thereof is death. So what does Abimelech do? Abimelech do? He makes a command. He commands the death penalty to anyone other than Isaac who touches Rebekah. And don't touch Isaac either, guys. This heathen, this heathen king also knew that the death penalty was the only way to stave off serious sin. That the only way to stop grave sin from happening is death. And if someone commits an awful sin, 
They deserve death. It's not murder. It's killing. There's a difference. And that this sin that they would have done was so bad, it was worse than the death penalty. He says death penalty because he knows that having the sin go on in his land would be worse than putting the offender to death. He knows that sin corrupts and that it brings it on the people and that ultimately it separates them from God. You know, Abimelech honored God. He protected the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah when he found out. And he shielded his people from sin. This is the way a king should be. And this is something that the promised son should have done. It was Isaac's job as her husband to protect her, to love her. It was Isaac's purpose to be an example and a witness of God's promise. But at the end of the day, when trouble came and he got scared, he was more worried about his own skin. And when temptation comes in our lives, it's usually, it always is, to protect our own skin. At the end of the day, it always affects our witness to those around us. Let's go on, verse 12. Uh, Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong page. Uh, Verse 12 here in 26. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. And so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gorar and dwelt there. Isaac planted, and in the same year he reaped one hundredfold. You know, I don't necessarily know how much plants he, how many plants he planted, or if it, you know the this the sowing is more about him pursuing his business and his lifestyle. Uh, but Galatians six seven through nine says, "Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap." We do not lose heart. And the Bible has plenty of verses about sowing. But Isaac is sowing. He's staying where God wants him to be. He's sowing and God is blessing it 100 times over. That's quite the return on investment. You know, we try and track return on investment for advertising and and things that work. And uh, definitely it's not 100 fold. If it was 100 fold, man, we would be be getting rewards out the wazoo and raising our prices. Uh, And we do good work and we get returns, but it's not this crazy. And this is obviously God's favor on Isaac. You know, again, I'm no farmer, but I'm sure it takes a few years of planting and and tilling to get the the crop up to full maturity and get a big return. Even if you have to plant new seeds every year, I still think that it's going to take some time for Isaac to learn the land, what the best layout is and all these other things. And yet this first year, God blesses it a hundredfold. And that's a huge bounty. Because remember, there's a famine going on. And somehow when Isaac is planting and growing and doing life, he's getting huge returns. Remember, Isaac is a nomad, so I'm not sure that he's an expert farmer. God's favor on someone's life is usually quite evident. I remember being in youth group, and you could see God's hand on all the kids' lives, whether they were good kids or bad kids, or they behaved or or disobeyed. You could still see God's favor on their lives and grace on them. And just wanting them to get it and come along with him and giving them the chances after chance. But you know, there are still some who were 
given over to him. That you could just see a special air of grace on that. These kids, they weren't, there was nothing different about them other than that you could see that they had received it to God. That uh, it was available to all of them, but that these kids had truly found it. They had truly received God's grace and God's forgiveness um, and wanted to serve him. And you could just see that. It was clear. You just see them walking down the road and it was like there was a bubble around them of God's grace. I like verse 13, you know, how many times can the writer say prosper in one sentence? And as we look at it, it says, the man began to prosper and he continued prospering until he became very prosperous. And these are his possessions as a result of prospering. But number one, it says he began to prosper. And then number two, he continued prospering. And number three, in that he became very prosperous. You could pass it off in the beginning as just beginning as beginner's luck. That, oh, he prospered. Oh, this is the first year. It's just luck that happened. That he got away with it, and now he's got a lot this year. But you know what? It wasn't luck, because there's no such thing. We just read that. You roll the dice, you try and play luck, but God's the one who turns up the dice, right? And because of that, he continued prospering. It wasn't just a one-year thing. It kept going on. It was his way of life. He kept doing it. Wherever he put his hands to, it did well. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. And I know that as I've uh, pursued the Lord, God has given me grace and favor in my career. And I've gone on trips and on meetings in front of people who make way more money than me or way more powerful in the world than I am just because of the gifts and talents that he's given me and that I've uh, used them under him. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in, in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And again, in 1 Kings 2, 3, David, King David says to Solomon, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, and as, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn. And why did Solomon prosper in his life? Because he asked God for wisdom. And because of that, God gave him everything else. And you know what? God wants to give you everything else. He wants you to prosper. But this doesn't always mean physical health, wealth, and prosperity like you might hear on TV or at worse at a church. The kind of prospering God wants for you ultimately is spiritual health, wealth, and prosperity. Even if your physical health, wealth, and prosperity never come to be. Because the physical can be stolen, can break, and get sick and die. But the eternal is eternal. And none of these things can happen. You know, spiritual prosperity can bring physical prosperity. You know, I, I find in my life that as I'm following the Lord, yeah, I'm not the richest, but I find that my life is prospering, that God has taken care of me, allowed me to take care of my children and things. And, and there may come hard times when I'm not able to do those and really have to rely on God from day to day, but he's given me opportunities and uh, you know, things as I followed him. And I could say that I am prosperous. But these things aren't always linked. You know, physical prosperity isn't always a sign of spiritual prosperity. There are people who are so rich in this world, but they are so depraved and wicked and empty. You know, Jesus had no place to lay his head. He's the son of God. He's God himself. He's born in a stable. He's got one coat. He's crucified. I don't see health, wealth, and prosperity in Jesus' life. You know where I see it? In eternity. He's the king of all kings, and 
Yet it didn't look like it on earth, right? Because he rose again. He's prosperous beyond all belief. He's the only one who can die and come back. And he says in Matthew 6, 19 and 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants your heart to be in heaven with him, looking forward to being with him. And if you don't have health, wealth, and prosperity, it's because he knows that that'll take you away from him. And he allows hard things in us that we might put our wealth where it belongs, in heaven with our hearts. You know, Isaac had flocks, herds, servants. He was rich. He was becoming very wealthy like, like Abraham. And you know what? The Philistines envied him. And when you and I are successful, people will envy us. Do we not envy those who are rich? Do we not envy the guy? And that's why we, we hate him, that he doesn't use his turn signal in his very expensive car. But you know what? It's not if they'll envy you, but when. And we all envy, like I said, the rich. If you look at Psalm 73, it says, I almost stumbled seeing how well the rich and wicked are doing. They're wicked, and yet they're rich. And they're not sick, and everything's going well for them, and I can't believe it. Why am I following God? And then he goes into the house of God. He goes, oh, now I remember. It's all fleeting. It's all vanity. And their end is death, and my end is life. Thank you, Lord. That's the difference. And a little political side note. I don't think we're 501c3 yet, so I can spend more than 5% of it, but this isn't even 5%. Why do you think everyone is trying to come to America? And have been coming to America, and my ancestors came here in the 1800s. Why do you think people don't want a border? It's because they want the prosperity that we have. And I'm not trying to keep it from people who earn it and who come here the right way, because I'm all for people coming to America to take part in her prosperity, but legally. Because if you're not legally taking part in prosperity, you're stealing it, you're ruining it, and then there won't be prosperity for any of us. I work with people now and I have in the past who have come here legally from across the ocean, from countries, and worked hard and gotten here and come here with nothing. Now they have jobs and they have families, they have homes, and I look, wow, that is amazing. I honor that and I respect that, and I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could move to Asia with the money in my pocket and find a job and get it. You know, like I can barely do that here, let alone doing that. And that's great. And they did it all legally and they have every right to be a part of America's prosperity. And I pray that they would be blessed and they would be prosperous and even more so than I because of their hard work. But we have to go about it the right way because if we're all fighting and scrambling over each other for it, there's not going to be anything left. It's going to be like a carcass with a bunch of wild wolves or sharks. But if we all work together and we work legally and we work hard, the prosperity can continue. But ultimately, we've been prosperous in this country because God has allowed it. God has blessed us. I'm not saying our motives were right all the time. But you know what? We used to follow God in this country. We went and we saved the Israelites from being annihilated, whether we went there to save our own skin or theirs. We came to their rescue. And guess what? After World War II, we've seen more prosperity than probably at any time in history. And we're seeing it fail because we've turned on him. While the rest of the world was looking to man and communism and socialism and dictatorships, we allowed God to be in our society for a while and we prospered. But now that we're not prospering because we turned to him, what do we want? We want man to rule over us. We want socialism. We want communism. We want a leader who gives us everything. We need to stop envying others 
and trying to take their things and trying to adopt their policies and start looking to the real rich man, the one who owns the cattle on every hill, and let him be our provider. Because he loves us, and he's not going to hurt us. He's not going to enslave us like they will. But their Philistine envy causes them to hate Isaac, to fear him. They're afraid that he's going to take them over, so they start to kick him out while they can, and they begin to vandalize his property. They fill up all his wells, all the wells that his father Abraham had dug. They disrespect him. They, they break down everything, you know? In this land especially, water was the source of life. You don't have a well, you don't drink, you don't feed your animals, you don't water your crops, you're not going to maintain the land, you're not going to survive there. That's why wells are so important. Wells were tied uh, with prosperity, and we'll see later on how many wells I, Isaac begins to find as God leads him. But think of it, it would be like someone cutting the power to your house. Your neighbors don't like you, so they cut your power. They begin to fill up your well. They begin to empty your propane tank or steal your firewood. Or for me, they would cut my internet. I could probably live without everything else. I need the internet, otherwise I can't work. I couldn't do my job. But you know what? He doesn't fight back. He lets them have their way. It's their land right now after all. It's got a promise to them, but they're still there. And so he goes and dwells in the Valley of Gerar. So he doesn't go far. He goes and dwells in the valley. It's interesting that all these guys are afraid that the Philistine king doesn't even come to his aid anymore uh, because Isaac is getting too powerful. And I have to wonder, was he really that powerful? You know, weren't there all these guys here? Wasn't he dwelling at peace with them? You know, that these guys were fearing him really because they saw God's favor on his life and they didn't have God's favor. And isn't that like the world? They hate us because we, the truth is, is because they see God's hand on us and they hate God. And it's interesting that this man of Abimelech goes from that to this. So he goes a little bit off grid a little bit. But you know what? When we obey God and God's blessings are, become apparent in our lives, we end up having a good marriage. It's not perfect, but it's good. We end up having a stable home. It's not perfect, but it's stable. We end up having a steady job. The economy's not always good. Sometimes we are concerned, but it's a steady job. We also have ministry. That's life in it. Whether it's public ministry or private ministry, but as a believer, your ministry begins to be blessed. And the real blessing of ministry is not numbers, but God's Spirit. And these things people will come against. And they will wish they had it, and they'll hate it because they hate God. And you know what? Uh, they could have it too. Just like those kids in youth ministry, they could all have the same favor on their lives if they just listened to God. They just turned to Him and believed it. And that's the same thing here. If they just obeyed God and the simple things that He's told them to do, they would have the same prosperity in their lives as we do. We've been watching um, the Waltons. At the end, they're talking about how they were poor in the Depression. He's writing like his memoir, uh, John Boy, right? And he just talks about, you know, we were so poor, but we were, we were, the, we were the richest that we've ever been. You know what? They could have it too. You know, we don't always have to be the richest in life, but I know that I'm prosperous because I know that my life, this is the life that I would have. You look at people who have everything they want in life, and they're not happy. Look at all these movie stars and things that are angry or kill themselves or worse. But people, when they see this favor on your life, they're going to defame you. They will try and get rid of you. They will try and get, get you fired. They will try and attack you. They will put out slanderous pieces on you. I mean, look at this, this kid in D.C. who did nothing wrong and got these newspapers trying to defame him as some sort of racist for just smiling at someone when they're railing against him. Another look at politics here. Look at how hateful they've become. So 
sometimes on both sides. But truly the words that one side really tends to use more than the other to describe the other is bigoted or racist and all these hateful words. And I think at its root, it's really because the values are so different. And I'm making some sweeping generalizations here, but conservatives tend to value the things of God more in general. Liberals tend to value the things of the world more. Look at where the liberals are, tend to be in city. Look where the conservatives are, tend to be in the Bible belts in the country. And yeah, politics has shifted quite a bit. Conservatives aren't as, con Republicans aren't as conservative anymore and liberal Democrats are more socialist than they used to be. But I think at the root, you can very see that, you know, even in issues like pro-life versus pro-choice. Those who are pro-life tend to believe in God and those who are pro-choice by far tend to despise God. You look at biblical marriage versus marriage is just a form of government or even this validation for their behavior. And I think it's truly because one side wants the peace, wants the blessing, wants the prosperity in life that only God offers, that even the poor have in Him. But they, being rich, don't have it in their way of life, their thinking, their efforts. And so they hate it. And they try and destroy it. And they try and get it by their own strength and their own means. But again, we could all have it if we just did what God would have us do. Because again, God's grace and God's favor is always, until the last day, available to everyone. No matter how good or how bad, how rich or how poor you are, God's grace is the same and His, His heart for you is the same. If we would but call on Him and listen to what He says in right and wrong, and like Abraham obey it and Isaac obey it, perhaps we'd be prosperous as well. In fact, I know we would. It's easy. It's like math. One plus one equals two. God's word plus obeying it equals you being prosperous in Him. And again, that doesn't mean money, but that means, like Jesus said, you'll have life and life abundantly. So God, we ask just for your grace and favor on our land, on those who disagree. And God, that there would become peace by you and your spirit. God, that you would uh, pour your spirit out in these last days and bring people to you, that we all might be prosperous in you, that the rich would bless the poor, and that the poor uh, would have riches in you. That, God, we would care for our brother and sister in need. And that, God, we wouldn't turn anyone away who wants to do the right thing. But, God, that you would uh, just bless your people, bless your body, bless your church, those who are hurting and who are in need. God, would you help them through, uh, get them food and their basic needs. But, God, most of all, that we, they would come to know you. Help us be a church that loves you and serves you and is willing to bless others. And God, as your hand is upon us, God, and you bless our lives, Lord, help us not to think it of our own doing, but God, to be grateful for it. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings in our lives, our family, our jobs, our friends, our homes, our shoes, our clothes, everything, God. And let you help us, God, give more to those in need. We love you, Lord, and ask for your grace and mercy. And God, we love you and look forward to all you're going to do. Come soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.